Christ. And um, that is right, it's very true. It does take Jesus Christ. But how does he do that? How does Christ get us to the end of the faith? And is there anything that we're supposed to do in that? Do we have a part in that? And maybe more personally, are there ever times in your life where you're just discouraged and you're wondering, am I going to persevere? Me, am I going to make it all the way to the end of this Christian life of faith and good works? And what I want to do is I want to start us off with a quote, and it's on your handout there, and you can follow through your handout, and to, there's a lot of notes in there for you to follow through with. And as you can see, this quote is from Bruce Lee, and that might seem a little odd for a women's retreat, but um, especially considering he was an atheist, but Bruce Lee said something about the martial arts that reminds me so much of the exhortation to perseverance in Hebrews that I want to build from that and, and use it as an illustration to talk from. I begin my book, Theological Fitness, with a Bruce Lee quote, and this is what it is. I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks one time, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Think about that for a minute. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, so what if you've practiced 10,000 kicks one time a piece, you're still an amateur, you're still a beginner. To master something, you need to repetitively exercise it over and over and over again. And it's better to master one thing than it is to be a slipshod at 10,000 different things. When you practice one move 10,000 times, what happens is you begin to know that intimately. It's almost like walking. Muscle memory develops, and so it becomes instinctive to you, and your body just knows it. And in the realm of martial arts, an opponent who is practiced one kick 10,000 times truly is someone to be feared. They have reached a level of fitness and stamina and a skill to exercise it with great strength and perfection. But I know what you're thinking. Amy, why are we talking about this? Why are you sharing this with a room full of church women? Well, if I'm honest, it's probably because I watched way too many karate flicks in the 80s. I'll just go ahead and put that out there. But it's also because I believe the writer to the Hebrews is saying the same thing. And so we're going to be spending a lot of time in Hebrews tonight and tomorrow. And it's a, it's a bit different than the other books in the New Testament in that it is written to be a sermon letter. And so it's written to exhort the intended first audience of Jewish believers to persevere in the Christian faith and not to turn back to their old covenant sacrificial system and ceremonies. But of course, in his providence, this is also God's word to us, right? And in this sermon letter, we learn that Jesus Christ is superior. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate 
prophet and he is the ultimate king to which all the others have been pointing to all along as merely types and shadows. This is a very theological sermon. And when I use a word like theology, all theology is is the study of God. It's just knowing God. So I was teaching a Bible study on Hebrews, and um, you really feel like you're climbing up a mountain there with all that theology every week, teaching it and uh, talking about it and answering questions. And after studying all these indicatives of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ, I was captivated with a particular imperative, a command that the preacher to the Hebrews lays out to press the reader to perseverance. And that is Hebrews 10.23. And we are going to be spending a lot of time there. Our whole talks are organized around this verse. And so here it is. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let me ask you another question. If you're getting to know someone new and they find out you go to church and like, oh, are you a Christian? And you answer affirming that yes, indeed, you are a Christian. Well, what if they say, well, what does that mean? exactly and I think that's a pretty good question in our day and age we have a lot of different ideas about what a Christian even is well that is what this sermon letter thoroughly teaches us and it is a very important question in fact what I want to do is propose here that our answer to this question and our ability to proactively cling to a proper confession of what we believe is directly connected to our perseverance in the Christian life. See, every Christian needs to know what it is that we are persevering for, right? Whether you're going through a tumultuous trial in your life right now, or whether you are just trying to get through the mundanity of your everyday living. And and this takes a certain level of tenacity to to grasp what is true about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is our one kick that we need to keep practicing every single day. And I call that theological fitness. And so you'll see in your handout there, I have a definition for you, that theological fitness refers to that persistent fight to exercise our faith by actively engaging in the gospel truth in God's word, revealed in God's word. So I'm not talking about just memorizing some of your favorite and most meaningful Bible verses, as wonderful as that is, but I'm talking about trusting in God's promises and having that motivate us for holy living. And that is what we are exhorted to here in Hebrews 10.23. And that's what I want to break down for you in these three talks. So hopefully, when I'm through, we will have some fundamentals laid down so that you'll be motivated and prepared to leave here then and practice your kick another 9,999 times and then some more after that. So let's get to it. 
Now, it would be really easy and tempting for me to just go ahead and start teaching you the mechanics of our kick. But that's not the way it works. The first thing any fighter needs to learn is a fighting stance. Before any kicks or any punches can be thrown, they need to know how to stand. So, for example, this is a horrible fighting stance right here for many, many reasons. Um, first of all, I'm a huge target. You can get me anywhere right now, and it'd be pretty easy. My face, my gut, whatever it is, sweep the leg. And I have pretty, not very good balance standing like this. If somebody were to hit me, I'm going down, okay, really easily. But interestingly, if I just turn a little bit to an angle, look, there's less of me to hit now. There's less of a target. If I bend my knees a little bit and tuck in my core, strengthen my core, and if I put my fighting arms up like this, then I'm blocking my face if someone comes after me, and I can move to the left pretty easy. I can move to the right, forward, backward, keeping my hands up the whole time. I've got a strong core. So I have a lot more mobility, I'm less of a target, and I'm now in a stance where I, it's much easier to learn how to throw a punch or to do that kick. So the first thing a fighter needs to learn is a fighting stance. Amy, why are you teaching us about karate? Well, guess what? Christians are fighters, too. We're fighters. Every day, we fight to persevere. We all want to be strong in the faith, right? Does anyone here want to have a weak faith? Of course not. We want a healthy spiritual life, just like we want physical health. So what's the problem then? Well, the problem is that there's something always working against our fight to be healthy, whether it's in a physical pursuit of fitness or a vigorous effort to get to know God. Uh, John Owen explains that this command in Hebrews to hold fast insinuates an opposing force, a great danger even. And he says this, to hold fast implies the putting forth our utmost strength and endeavors in the defense of our profession and a constant perseverance in so doing. That doesn't sound very passive, does it? No, holding fast to our confession of hope requires fight. And one thing is for sure, we are not going to hold fast to a confession of hope that we know little about, are we? And we love, as Presbyterians, to say and affirm that faith is a gift of God. But we also need to remember that faith is a fighting grace. And so the first thing we need for theological fitness is a good fighting stance. And that's what the very first two words in our verse give us. You know, I've got some good news for you here today. And that is that Christian perseverance isn't a battle that we fight alone. And so our exhortation begins with two very important words that are easy to skip over. I don't know about you, but I read a verse like this as a personal message to Amy Bird, and so I read, hold fast to your confession of hope, Amy. But that's not what it says, does it? Remember, this is a sermon letter. 
and it's addressing a congregation. And so it says, let us hold fast to our confession of hope. And so the first thing that we need to realize is that we hold fast to our confession within the covenant community of our church. We have to go into the battle prepared. It's not merely me and God. I have a fighting stance and a very strong core. God didn't send us out alone as strangers and pilgrims on this earth, but he has given us the entire body, the entire church as the body of Christ, sisters and brothers in the Lord who accompany us and fight with us. He even set aside the first day of every week to worship together. And do you look at that day as a glimpse of what is to come? Because that's what it is. And so the preacher to the Hebrews, he labors to explain why they can now draw near to God in worship, near to God. So let's put our verse in context. I don't want to just rip out Hebrews 10.23 and ignore all the beautiful strings that come up with it in that sermon. And so we'll see if you're looking, if you have your Bibles open to Hebrews 10.23, that there's three let us imperatives there. And that one's the middle one. So his first let us imperative says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then immediately following our exhortation to hold fast to the confession of our hope, the writer kind of sandwiches it with another imperative for the church saying, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So as we are waiting for this approaching day of our Lord's return, believers are giving something extraordinary. On the first day of every single week, we are called, we are summoned to gather together for corporate worship. Now, I'm making this sound like a pretty big deal, right? But some of you grew up in the church your whole lives, and you're thinking, seems kind of ordinary to me, right? I mean, we live in this entertainment-driven culture that is saturated with the latest technology. And so we have all these vying messages, fireworking from our smartphones and our smart TVs and our smart tablets and our watches. Our attention spans actually shrinking. Did you know that? Uh, I read a, a great uh, book by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows. It's not a Christian book, but it's a really good book. He's an author who noticed that he is so distracted now that when he sits down to read something he loves to do, he's having a hard time reading for long periods of time and paying attention to what he's reading. And this is somebody who does that for a living and, and loves it. And so he decided to investigate that more. And um, I don't, have you ever heard the saying, what fires together, wires together? We're actually wiring different pathways. Our brains are physiologically changing due to all the interruptions that we're getting um, from gathering information on the internet. 
And so we expect crisp visual interfaces and easily scanned information that we can just gather really quickly. And he has a line in that book that I, it's gold, and he says, as he's making this observance about himself, once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, and now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. So with all these vying messages and all these fantastic devices, you know, maybe the thought of singing along with some ordinary people and an ensemble of instruments and voices then listening to maybe a half hour long sermon. Maybe that sounds unappealing to a culture that's accustomed to such extraordinary means of communication. I mean, they really are extraordinary. And then, you know, we have these five star worthy um, recipes that we can pull up on Pinterest, right? And, and then we could take a picture of it and put it on our Instagram and show everybody how, how good we are. Um, maybe broken bread, a little piece of broken bread and a sip of uh, wine or grape juice, you don't seem like you're, it's worth your time. But God has ordained very ordinary means to communicate extraordinary grace, while the war world uses extraordinary means to communicate what? You know, ordinary humdrum data. Basically, right? There was a study done by Retrievo. It, it interviewed 1,000 people and it indicated that 48% of us check Facebook before getting out of bed in the morning. I found that fascinating. Um, just even where the location of your phone would have to be in order to do that. And so eager to get the latest update, many don't seem to mind being interrupted during a meal in the bathroom, or even during an intimate moment. And nowadays, Facebook and Twitter seem to be the preferred means to intake our daily news as well, according to this study. So I thought, you know, wow, first thing to go to in the morning, like, what is this worthy information that we are running to our gadgets for? So, you know, I got on my Facebook, one quick glance of my newsfeed, this is what I saw. I saw a picture of my friend's coffee, some people complaining about the weather, a handful of worthy articles to share, and some funny stuff too. I think those are the things that I love to go in there for myself. Announcement that a friend's son received their dri driver's license. That's some good news. As then the rest was like a flood of selfies and advertisements. That's all pretty ordinary stuff, right? I mean, some of it's good, but it's ordinary. But that made me want to know another, an answer to another question. I mean, what's the actual percentage of people who will get out of bed for a worship service as regular attenders? Well, that may be less than 20%. It's really sad. And it does make you ask, do the means of grace that God has instituted seem too ordinary to get out of bed for? You know, are we welcoming all these interruptions to our social networks and then turning a blind eye to the weekly interruption of the age to come that is breaking in to this age that is wasting away? Because that, in a sense, is what is happening when we gather for corporate worship. The future is breaking in to the present right before us. 
So while our spectacular, shiny devices mediate all of our friends' latest status updates to us, Jesus Christ and all of his benefits are conferred to us through the preached word and the sacraments. And so Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant that is established by better promises. And we have direct access to God through Christ's priestly service. And not only that, in him we make up the living temple of God. And so we are mediating God's presence to the watching world. So the church is a living picture of extraordinary grace. But look at us. We're just a body full of helpless sinners, right? Who have been rescued and redeemed. And now we embody the spirit of the Savior himself. And sure, each one of us, each believer, is given the Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal of our new creation in Christ. But together, as his church, we are his beloved bride that he is going to come for on that great day. And so think about that. As our weeks bombard us with updates through all of our extraordinary devices, it's easy for us to begin to think that we're receiving extraordinary information. But when we are called together as a people to a set-apart space, we hear truly amazing news. We need to hear the gospel preached because this is the good news and it's completely outside of ourselves. And not only is the message powerful, but we see in Hebrews that the word itself is living and active, revealing our hearts. You know, I may be able to present my best you on all my social profiles. I'm not going to post a picture of me and the kids after I've done made their lunches in the morning and their breakfast in the morning and fed the dog and the house looks a mess and they're all out of there. I'm not going to post that picture, you know. I'm not going to post all the dirty dishes in the sink and all those things. No, I can choose how I look to the world and how I present myself to the world. But under the preached word before God, I'm completely exposed. And the law of his word undresses my faux self-importance and my faux self-righteousness. And then the gospel graciously clothes me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I find that all those little stories that I thought were so significant throughout the week are finally put back into perspective as I'm recast into the divine drama that's revealed in scripture. Michael Horton has articulated this so well, so I'm just gonna quote him. He says, created by speech, upheld by speech, and one day glorified by speech, we are like the rest of creation, summoned beings not autonomous. We exist because we have been spoken into existence and we persist in time because the Spirit ensures that the Father speaking in the Son 
will not return void. And so getting back to my fighting stance analogy, we are privileged to stand together as a church. We haven't been left alone. And we hold fast with the covenant community of the church, united to Christ by his Holy Spirit. And this is truly powerful. What a blessing that we have in Christ. And then that's going to give us the confidence and then the security for this command to hold fast. So let's get to those words. Hold fast. I remember well the first time the teacher in my childbirth classes introduced coping techniques for the pain. I was a mere 23 years old when I had my first child. And I remember going to this class thinking, you know, my family, my mom had me when she was 17 years old. And so I had gotten my college degree, I'd been married for two years, I'd started a business, um, had a coffee shop, and things were going great. I thought, well, I'm really growing up now. And I go into this class, and everybody else there having their first child, they're like 32, you know? So I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And I was adamant that I did not want pain medication during my childbirth. So I had several reasons for that. Um, one reason is because my back is crooked, so I did not want an epidural. I didn't know how that would go for me. But anyway, I go in there, and she said, All right, this, we're going to practice coping with the pain of labor and delivery without drugs today. I'm like, all right, sounds like a good idea. And so she hands out a bag, Ziploc bags of ice cubes, filled with ice cubes to each one of us. And um, she says, all you gotta do is hold on to this bag tightly for 60 seconds. And if you start to feel an uncomfortable burn, you can do those breathing exercises that I taught you, and that'll help you to cope with the pain. Well, I'm kind of a little bit of a competitive person, okay? So I'm looking at these women in the room, and I'm like, it's on. You know, I'm going to beat y'all. And um, so we start, and guess what? The pain was so much more than I had anticipated. It hurt so bad to hold stinking ice. And so here I am, like, ah. I'm not going to embarrass myself by doing labor and delivery breathing while I'm holding ice, and I think that would just be an annoying add-on. The pain was so much more bothersome than I anticipated. I just saw no value in completing this task. I mean, it was just ice, right? But like I said, I'm a little competitive. And so I thought, well, these women are dropping like flies. I can tell it's bothering them too. So I'm just going to hold on longer than they do. And so that's what I did. I waited until the last woman let go, and I still didn't make it stink in 60 seconds, and I let go of my ice as well. But that also provoked a very scary thought. Um, as the popular hymn goes, there's no turning back. Like, I had this kid inside of me, and um, apparently she had to come out. <laughs> and I can't even hold on to a bag of ice for 60 seconds. So I'm thinking, oh no, how am I going to get through this long, torturous labor? What was I thinking? And so as my pregnancy progressed, I started um, developing these conspiracy theories. And I thought, 
it can't really happen the way that they say that it happens. Um, after this whole ICE experience, I was having a whole new outlook on the possibilities of doing what they say. Even though I saw the videos, I was like, oh, no, I think that this is all a trick, and all mothers know something that we don't know. And, you know, it's a secret that you'll learn when you get to the hospital. It's like privileged information. Well, as you know, it does happen that way. And, and thankfully, I was able to make it through three labor and deliveries and meet my goal of coping through the pain without drug use. And, you know, the breathing techniques were, were actually helpful in a real situation, but there was definitely a motivating difference that helped me to persevere. You know, I wasn't holding on to a bag of ice. I was holding on to the hope that I was going to hold a beautiful child in my arms at the end, no matter how bad it hurt. Now, by no means am I trying to brag here and make you think that I was a model student in the labor and delivery room. Let's just say that everyone in that room and in the hallway and in all the rooms down the hallway, and my husband would probably add the whole state of Maryland, was well aware of my pain and suffering. But I held on. I held on. In our Hebrews 10.23 verse, we are exhorted to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And so we've established that we're not left alone to do this, but we're to encourage one another with the good news of the gospel in the covenant community of our church. And we share a common goal, but we all look different in this process of sanctification. And even using my childbirth illustration, we all do that differently, right? Pain meds can be very good for people and rational. We all look different, but maybe this appeal to hold fast sounds a bit vague to you, doesn't it? I mean, what does that really mean? And how do you do that in real life? Well, I propose that it's both simple and extremely difficult. Putting or put simply, holding fast means that you grab tightly and you don't let go, right? But I think that my labor and delivery teacher made a very good point in her little exercise. You have to be prepared to deal with suffering. Endurance takes stamina. Stamina takes training. And so I will repeat it. Faith is a fighting grace. Do not mistake it for an easy believism or a passive coast until the roll is called up yonder, to quote from another hymn. Having a confession is not enough. We must hold fast to it. And so we fight to hold fast to our hope no matter what. In the beginning of Hebrews 12, we see that we must persevere in holiness to reach the crown at the end of the race. And so in case you think I'm making too much of this whole idea of holding on, I mean, it's only one verse, right? Let me show you some other references that connect perseverance to holding fast. And I'll start with Hebrews. Hebrews 3.14 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Then there's our Hebrews 10.23 verse, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I find that very convicting there at the end. Philippians 2, 14 and verse 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And Revelation, all the way, take that thread to the end. Revelation 2.25 and 26 Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations. So we see this exhortation to hold fast. It requires a theological fitness because we're required to lay hold of the gospel. And so it's one thing for me to get up here and to make a profession of faith and to say that I am a Christian, but it takes a level of conditioning in what I am confessing to hold fast to it. So this aptitude or this fitness, it comes from a persistent fight, persistent over and over again, to exercise our faith by actively, not passively, engaging in the gospel truth revealed in God's word. I mean, what do we believe when we're being tempted to sin? What is it that you believe then? What do you believe when you fail? What do you believe when you're hurt and when you're suffering? What do you believe when you are deceived? To persevere in the truth that we profess, we are told to hold tight to our confession. Thomas Schreiner put it very well, um, great little book um, on Hebrews called Run to Win the Prize. And he says, perseverance then is nothing other than grasping the scandal of the cross until the day we die. It's that simple. You know, we tend to associate a perseverance a lot of the time with our own righteousness to prove our own holiness. I know I do. But if we do that, we are going to utterly fail. Holding on to our bare works 
is failure. And so Schreiner continues, the author of Hebrews does not commend perfection to his readers, rather he exhorts them to continue to hold on to Jesus Christ, to continue to cling to his sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. Believers persevere by continuing to find their forgiveness and final sanctification in Christ instead of themselves. Doesn't that liberate us then to strive for holiness all the way to the end? Because we know that whatever flaws that we may have, and I can stop right now and on the plane rides to these places that I'm about to speak and I think, what in the heck are these people asking me to come speak to them for? Do they really know me? I'm full of flaws. Whatever flaws that we may have, he is blessing our efforts. We are in Christ. Christ's righteousness proves our holiness. Believers have been sealed with his Holy Spirit, applying his work to us right now. And so we trust that he is working in us as we hold fast to living a holy life. So I want to simplify this a little more practically for you um, and give you the key to holding fast. And that is focus. I mean, the sermon letter to the Hebrews has a forward-looking focus. The preacher keeps reminding the reader where Christ is right now. And so tomorrow, we're going to get to the section tomorrow morning of the details of our confession, and we're going to do some theology, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. I would love for you to read that in the morning before you come, or tonight before you go to bed. It's only seven verses long. We're going to pull 14 confessions out of those seven verses. And so here we see in Psalm 110 that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and interceding on our behalf. So while the writer to the Hebrews is emphasizing that our Lord's redemptive work to justify his people is finished, he also points us to our future hope that awaits us at the end of this marathon, he calls it, that is the Christian life of faith and obedience. And so we see in chapter 11 the promise that all those Old Testament believers held fast to, it wasn't something that was going to be fulfilled before the resurrection. They were looking toward a better country, one that would never be shaken. We are running toward something, and we hold fast to this truth. Sometimes I can talk my husband, Matt, into doing my workout videos with me. Um, not so much lately, but um, he used to work out with me a lot more. And one of the trainers in there is constantly telling us to be engaged. Only he doesn't say it that way. He's southern, and he's kind of emphasizing this word, and so he kind of adds a Y and an extra syllable in there, and he says, engaged, like that. Well, when he says this, Matt and I are like holding weights out like this, and we're dying, okay? And it's like midpoint of the workout or something, so we're pretty tired, and we're feeling the pain, and we want to let go. And so we've done 
done this little thing now that every time he says it, we know it's coming. You know, we think it's really funny because, you know, we're in pain and we need something to laugh about. And um, so we, we echo him or we say it at the same time or we beat him to it. You know, we're like engaged. We love to say it. But the trainer, he's emphasizing the word to make a very important point. Doing the workout isn't just about going through the motions. The benefits are more substantial when we are engaged in the process. That's a principle that I try to instill into my children to apply when they're sitting under the preached word. It's called active listening. Sit up. Make eye contact. Take some notes. Ask questions in your head when the sermon's being preached. Make connections with other areas in scripture to what the pastor is saying. Tie it into your own personal life experiences. Be engaged in the sermon. That requires some mental fitness too, doesn't it? In other words, pay attention. That's exactly the exhortation that the preacher to the Hebrews gives in his first warning to persevere uh, in Hebrews 2.1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the preacher, he's already declared that God has spoken to us in these last days by his son. Then he makes the case that Jesus Christ is superior even to the angels. Well, if Jesus is better than the angels, then his message must be of greater significance as well, right? And then following verse 1, we read, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So here we see this popular argument from the less to the greater. I mean, the angels, they participated in delivering the law of Moses. So the recipients, the first recipients of this sermon, they knew how crucial the law was. They were also well aware of the sanctions for breaking the law. But both Moses and the angels worked for Jesus. That law could never save. So it's at great peril that one would neglect Christ's message of salvation through him. There is no confession of hope without Jesus. And so what does he say? He says, pay attention. Notice how similar this warning is to our exhortation to hold fast. The words are very similar in the Greek concordance. For hold fast we see words like keep in memory, possess, retain, seize on. I like that one a lot because it's really active. And stay. And for our phrase, pay attention, we see similar words. To hold to, tend to, turn to. The King James Version translates, give the more earnest heed where the English standard uses, pay much closer attention. I like how this adverb for earnest also translates more superabundantly. 
as if super abundantly isn't a big enough word, they have to put more super abundantly. So I kind of have my own housewife theologian translation to be super abundantly engaged in God's word, intensely involved. Isn't that what holding fast really is? And so as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to the promises of God, he also gives us a desire to learn from God's word and walk with it, walk in it. But we still need to exhort one another to not just go through the motions. Pay attention to the gem that we have. Give heed to God's word and get engaged with its message of salvation. You know, one key way of being engaged is through prayer. And again, we have the help of God's Holy Spirit as we're privileged to approach our Father in prayer. And God doesn't use his angels as mediators to and from him in prayer, but he uses his own son, Jesus Christ. He is both the message and the means. And so if we neglect this message of salvation, how can we escape apostasy and judgment? How can we possibly approach the almighty God? So as sure as Jesus paid our ransom, and as sure as he won the victory for his kingdom on the cross, he will return to consummate that kingdom. And we can be assured of this because he was resurrected. And now where is he? He has ascended to the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made a footstool. Pay attention to what is to come. And then you're going to be encouraged to endure those trials, those hard trials that will come your way. Be super abundantly engaged in his promise and you're not gonna turn away to anything else. As your focus is strengthened to the glory of God, your intensity then to hold fast is also gonna strengthen. And so when you're faced with temptation, when you're faced with adversity, you're gonna find that perseverance then to get back up and to stay the course. And so you will develop theological fitness. We're gonna pray and then you guys are going to break up in groups of like five to 10, if you can, right here in your pews. And there's some questions that have been handed out for you to work on from session one to discuss together before we come back together for worship. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for this church. I thank you for all these women, Lord, who have come to, because they wanna learn more together. Lord, about you and, and about this topic of, of perseverance. Um, theological fitness, it sounds, it sounds tough. It is tough, Lord, and it's something from you, though. We thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for the covenant community of your church. We thank you for our pastors. We thank you for our sisters and our brothers in Christ. Lord, I pray that we don't take that for granted that we will encourage one another in the gospel, that we will exhort one another with your word. Lord, that we would help one another to hold fast as we know you 
are holding fast to us, and that is the only way that we can do it. Thank you for Sunday. Thank you for that first day of the week. Thank you for summoning us to you, Lord, together to rest in Christ and to receive your means of grace, Lord. Thank you for blessing us in Christ. I pray that um, we can have fruitful discussion from this talk now, Lord, and that you give us a safe return home and back tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.